Hi, it's Fraser here. As regular listeners will know by now, Spiked's podcasts, essays, articles, and videos are free in every sense of the word. Spiked exists to fight for freedom. And in 2020, freedom has never been more threatened. Lockdown threatens our right to free assembly and free movement, while cancel culture and identity politics threaten our right to free speech and free thought. Democracy, that most important right of a free people, is similarly under siege. Spiked wants to challenge these illiberal and authoritarian trends, but we can't do it without your help. It's donations from our listeners and readers that allow us to keep up these fights and to take our message to a growing audience. So, if you haven't already, please consider making a donation to Spiked. One-off donations are fantastic, but regular donations are even better. Just £5 per month can make an enormous difference to our work. Donating to Spiked is really easy to do. Just go to our website at spiked-online.com and hit the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. We cannot thank you enough for your support. Now, on with the Spiked podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast's end of year special. I'm Fraser Myers, and joining me to look back on 2020, the year the world went mad, is Spike's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike's columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up, we're going to be discussing the year of lockdown, the cultural revolution, and the survival of populism. It is done. We are out. This is the first day of a new month. It is the start of a new era, though, in terms of Britain's relations with the European Union. The mystery virus started here in the city of Wuhan. We start tonight with the unprecedented measures being enforced right across Italy to try to limit the spread of coronavirus. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must Stay at home. Outrage at the death of George Floyd, an African-American man. I say there's no such thing as not racist. There's, there's racist and anti-racist. This race is far from over. Former Vice President Joe Biden is now the president-elect. There is a path to an agreement now. The path may be very narrow. Our door is open. We'll keep talking. But I have to say that things are looking difficult. We began the year with Brexit. Britain's departure from the EU. There were celebrations in Trafalgar Square on January the 31st. People were expecting Brexit had, you know, given a new lease of life to British politics. The Conservative Party under Boris Johnson had just won the month before a massive majority. And even in that period, it's very hard to imagine now, even when there was this novel coronavirus circulating in Wuhan, we had no idea the extent to which it would take over our lives. So, In early 2020, no one had ever heard of the phrase social distancing. Only medical doctors and bank robbers wore masks and lockdowns were mainly enforced in prisons. But since then, billions of people across the world were placed under some form of lockdown. One day you could be in a liberal democracy and the next day you could be criminalised for leaving the house. Ella, do you want to talk a bit about this? Yeah, I was looking back at the dates of when this all started, just because it's really difficult to keep track of time when most of your days feel the same. You know, we might have had a routine before, but the world has gotten a lot smaller, some of us to the four walls of our bedroom. But it was back in, you know, the 23rd of January 
that the first announcement came that there was going to be no travel to Wuhan. And then eventually, you know, a few days later, there was discussion about social distancing. I mean, even thinking about things like, remember when the focus was all on Italy and mm. just looking back at those periods of time and the fact that the kind of first real restrictions came in on the 16th of March. And since then, there has been to a greater or less degree for most people in the UK and across the world, actually, no real let up. So while we might have had a period of grace in the summer when we were all kind of allowed to go back out a little bit, we still definitely weren't allowed to go maskless. We weren't allowed to go around and hug each other or gather in groups. So since the 16th of March, life has been irrevocably different. And I think it's just important to have that perspective because while not wanting to have this podcast on a depressing note, but it's kind of inevitable when talking about coronavirus, I think the problem that we've looked at, you know, week on week when we've been talking all along has been the sort of never ending nature of not the pandemic, because that's one thing, but the lockdown restrictions. And it's just fascinating to go back and listen to some of the speeches that Boris Johnson made, Matt Hancock made and look at the content of what the government was putting out because it has flip-flopped again and again from the start of this thing. So it's actually it's quite heartening listening to, for example, that speech that Boris Johnson made right at the start in March when he was quite frank and open with the public and said, look, this is going to be bad. Some people are going to die, but what we're going to have to do is just muscle in our common sense, utilize our ability to act like sensible, reasonable people and deal with this together. And the funny thing is, of course, you know, we're, we're talking on Thursday now, just yesterday, Boris Johnson was widely criticized for using that phrase again, common sense, but we haven't been using common sense throughout the last few months. In fact, it's been pretty much a dependency on what minister is going to pronounce the rules to be week on week. But just looking back across that period, you think, at no point really in those months has there been any input from the public. At no point has there been any sense of any kind of democratic conversation about what way we might want to deal with this thing, how this is affecting our lives. And yes, as everyone will you know, tell you, lockdown fanatics will tell you, how can you have democracy in the middle of a, an emergency, in the middle of a pandemic? But when it gets to be an entire year almost of emergency, it stops becoming an emergency and it starts becoming reality. And I think it's that kind of sense that I'm left with at the end of 2020, that this thing that was unprecedented is not unprecedented any longer. Mm. And, you know, that's the thing that needs to change in 2021. Tom, Fraser, you mentioned Brexit Day, as did Ella. And I think that the irony that that's what starts the year, this celebration of putting the kind of last few years behind us, all that kind of poison in our politics that was built up because of this attempt to scupper Brexit by various sections of the establishment. Finally, this blow for democracy and popular sovereignty, all the rest of it was going to come off. People felt empowered once again after just being kind of passive spectators of all of the clown show going on in Parliament. And then within, you know, two months, we're all under house arrest. Mm. I mean, the sort of tragedy of that is, is pretty incredible. And as Ella was saying, I think one of the things that has made the never-ending lockdown so interminable for a lot of people is the fact that we have had so little control over it whatsoever. I mean, this is a point that we've made on this podcast before, that it kind of doesn't really matter how you feel about these restrictions, how you feel about the policy, what you think is important for us to do to try and tackle this virus. Everyone should be alarmed at the way in which this was done. Mm. 
I mean, the government has been ruling by decree for most of this year, using powers under the Public Health Act 1984, funnily enough, in order to enforce lockdown, come up with new rules on the fly. We've seen the introduction of crazy exorbitant fines for things as small as not wearing a mask or having a house party. We've seen protests banned. And this is something which didn't seem to alarm anyone. Mm. Even though in a democracy, you should be able to make your voice heard. And it it seems almost particularly grim in a situation where we're being expected to put up with all of these extraordinary measures, and yet your ability to dissent and show your opposition to them is completely curtailed. This is really, really alarming. And combine that with the fact that the goalpost kept being moved, that it did go from being, lest we forget, a three-week lockdown to protect the NHS, mm. through to one that is just became the means through which the virus would be controlled, allegedly, in the long term. It just is a really, really grim picture, and it demonstrates how important it's going to be to try and make the case for freedom and democracy, not just for the good times, but for the bad times as well, to make clear that even in the midst of an emergency, you need the public to be making these decisions, to be you know, making these balanced judgments along with government and everyone else. Because this year, the risk with the past 12 months is that it becomes a legitimization of these kinds of tactics in, in other situations, mm. whether it's dealing with other future pandemics, climate, you've already got some crazy greens talking about a lockdown for the environment. We really can't let that happen. So whilst there's the kind of immediate issue of making sure that we can get back to normal as soon as possible, the legacy of this kind of government, this kind of governance being legitimised is something that could cast a long shadow if we're not careful. And one thing that's been striking, and, and this has improved as the year has, has gone on, but at the very beginning of this, there was almost no debate or no dissent really allowed from the lockdown policy. It was simply that anyone who queried the policy, anyone who tried to draw attention to what the disadvantages might be, was simply shouted down as someone who, you know, wants to kill people, essentially. Now, that has improved slightly. There are more open lockdown sceptics, if we want to call them that. So that's that's something that's got a bit better. And, you know, there have been real cost to this policy. And that's something that we really cannot discount. I mean, the most obvious one is the effect it's had on the on the economy. I mean, it's, it's completely shattered the UK. We've had the worst economic recession in around 300 years since the Great Frost destroyed all of our crops and the River Thames froze over. And that economic hit has fallen disproportionately on the poor and on the working class. And I don't just mean the poor in Britain, in the in the rich world. I mean the poor in the developing world too. The World Bank estimates that 150 million people have fallen into extreme poverty this year, not as a result of the pandemic as is often framed, but as a result of the authoritarian and disruptive response to the pandemic. You know, pandemics come around every few decades, unfortunately, but none has been dealt with in such a, a devastating way. And yet, as you've both alluded to, this has become normalised. This is no longer unprecedented. This way of dealing with threats has become institutionalised. And it's good that there is more questioning of this at the end of the year than there was at the beginning. But, you know, we really have our work cut out for us for in, in challenging this in 2021. The question is, how does this change in 2021? And the thing that I'm really worried about and that Luke Gittos has written about and spiked several times throughout the year is the changes in the law. And Adam Wagner, who's a kind of commentator and a lawyer on Twitter, has been pretty much detailing the changes in the law bit by bit. And he's got this great thread where he talks about the fact that there have been over 60 
lockdown laws passed since March over 60. Mm. And they extend to regulations from the tiny things like where and when you should wear a face mask up to very serious things like giving the government the power to as Tom says, clamp down on protests to close public spaces, to stop people from expressing their religious views, going to church, all those kinds of things, just things that you couldn't imagine if someone said to you in November 2019 that in a year's time, all of these things are going to be in some way or other illegal under the guise of public health. It's just unfathomable. And the thing that's worrying is that it's very difficult once these laws are in place given under emergency powers and explained away like that, that they get reversed. And the government has throughout this process passed these laws, you know, sometimes at kind of quarter to midnight with absolutely no time for any kind of parliamentary scrutiny. I mean, putting aside the fact that almost all MPs are in favour of lockdown anyway, but hmm. still parliamentary scrutiny is important. No public debate it gets fed out to us in the press or in these sort of, at this point now, kind of pantomime press conferences. That's really worrying in terms of people's relationship with the state and our relationship with the law and the fact that things are illegal now that really shouldn't be illegal. But the main point is you might be able to understand this if we were at a different position now than we were in March. But Though the levels of the virus and the spread of the infection rate is not as bad as the spring lockdown, we are still not in a good place. Mm. This is still not under mm. control. We've got very positive news in relation to the vaccine, but again, screw ups in the process of getting that out and organization means that the rate of that being rolled out to elderly and vulnerable is much slower than it could be. I mean, they haven't got anything right. And so then the justification, which is a serious one, that this is a dangerous virus that is unprecedented and that changes. I mean, we've had news of different strains come out in the last few weeks. All of that would be understandable if the rates were coming down, but they're not. And mm. so then the question is, right, are we going to just have this for a, another mm. year. There are really worrying things coming out, like Jonathan Van Tam and Patrick Valance and others saying that there are certain things that we should learn from 2020 that are positives, like why not have face masks in the future to stop flu? Why not have social distancing in schools to, I don't know what, stop kids getting nits off each other? <laughs> I mean, all of this stuff is now that it's out there, now that the laws mm. are passed, now that the kind of trade-off between security and freedom has swung one way, it's going to be very hard and a challenge to, despite listeners and readers, to push it back and push in favour of freedom because it's quite worrying the way in which the government has gotten away with doing such incredibly stringent things and incredibly authoritarian things without a success rate. That links in as well with a point that Brenda O'Neill was made recently, which is that the flip side to the formal restrictions on liberty that we've got to be very careful of and make sure that we do unpick and get rid of as soon as possible is the extent to which the kind of culture of freedom has been entirely eroded. The extent to which you can have formal liberties, but if you don't have the self-confidence as individuals and as a society to exercise them, then they become just pieces of paper. And in a situation in which we've been so browbeaten We've been told to stay away from each other. We've become far more atomized. And as we've been saying, some of these kind of extreme authoritarian measures have been normalized. Rebuilding that culture, that culture of freedom, of solidarity, of wanting to be with one another in public space, et cetera, is not necessarily going to be straightforward. And I do worry about the 
long tail of lockdown, not just in terms of the economic impact, which you were talking about, Fraser, which is going to be very, very serious. I mean, the impact has been horrendous already, and yet the furlough scheme is still ongoing. You know, in terms of unemployment, that's going to soar in the new year, surely. Mm. But in terms of the kind of social impact, this is something I wrote about earlier this year, which was that the issue of kind of atomization in society the issue of people feeling more and more nervous around one another has been a long growing problem. You know, there was this study in 2014, the UK was named the loneliness capital of Europe, which I think is kind of a byword for what we're talking about. Back in February, the ONS put out this bulletin, which made the point that people are engaging less and less with their neighbours, spending more and more time on social media. They feel more safe in their neighbourhoods, but they don't feel like they belong to them, was the quote. And if you think after what's going to be very soon 12 months of an explicit policy of keep your distance, stay away, fear others, etc. That's going to only have been very severely accelerated. So I think on all of these different levels, it's just there's the formal case of getting out of lockdown and getting out of the police state measures that we've got used to. But then the cultural and the social part of it is almost going to be the, the trickier end of it. Earlier this year, more than 100 Twitter users had their accounts hacked into. Passwords, email addresses, phone numbers and more were all taken from high-profile people like Joe Biden, Elon Musk and Kanye West. These kinds of attacks are getting more frequent and more severe. And it's not just Twitter. Facebook, eBay, Uber, Adobe and Yahoo have all leaked data such as passwords, credit card info and driver's licenses belonging to billions of users. If someone can hack Joe Biden just imagine how easy it would be for them to hack you. That's why I use ExpressVPN to safeguard my personal data online. According to recent reports, hackers can make up to $1,000 from selling someone's personal information on the dark web, making people like me and you easy, lucrative targets. ExpressVPN is an app that funnels your data through a secure encrypted tunnel, so that no matter what device you use, you can have peace of mind every time you use the internet. This app connects with just one click, it's lightning fast, and the best part is that ExpressVPN works on up to five devices simultaneously, so you and your whole family can stay protected. If a breach can happen to powerful individuals, it can easily happen to you. So protect yourself with ExpressVPN, the VPN rated number one by CNET, Wired, and countless others. And if you visit expressvpn.com slash spiked right now, you can arm yourself with an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash spiked. Visit expressvpn.com slash spiked to learn more. It's also worth thinking about the fact that there was one moment in the year when many of the restrictions seemed to melt away. The concerns about the pandemic suddenly played second fiddle, and that was brought about by the murder of George Floyd in late May by a police officer in Minneapolis. This, of course, sparked huge Black Lives Matter protests across the US and even across the globe. Social media was awash with black squares Every celebrity, brand and mega corporation was suddenly telling you how to be an ally for racial justice. 
public health experts were telling you that you should go out and protest and that racism was a bigger public health threat than the coronavirus. And one thing that quickly dawned on us and that we've been talking about a lot at Spiked is the way in which the initial demand for an end to police brutality quickly transformed into a debate about culture, statues torn down, school and university curriculums revised, buildings renamed, film and TV shows removed from streaming services or given trigger warnings. I mean, Tom, do you want to speak a little bit about this uh, kind of cultural revolution that has happened this year? No, it's absolutely fascinating because as you say, it so quickly became about something else. And I think in the swiftness that we saw it turn from righteous anger at the horrendous killing of a black man in Minneapolis and became a discussion about the mighty Bush or Gone <laughs> with the Wind or Churchill or Gandhi even, or, you know, they've just cancelled Lincoln recently as well, which is quite interesting in San Francisco. The reason is, it's, I think it's the difference between anti-racism, <laughs> as most people understand it, and kind of capital A, no hyphen anti-racism, <laughs> which is this new identitarian version of it, which is to an almost absurd extent obsessed, not with the material conditions under which people live and suffer sometimes, but the cultural, almost the cultural, psychological, almost spiritual experience of, of people. This obsession with the extent to which statues erected long ago can reinforce oppression in the here and now, therefore you need to topple them. The idea that a sitcom that might have had one moment of blackface in it because it's dated and old and that was acceptable in the old days has to be torn down because it can reinforce those kinds of prejudices in the present. That is all this this woke politics, this identity politics, which we've been talking about for many years. A lot of people have slowly been seeing it become more and more influential in the media, in academia, in all these different segments. And that's what has exploded, you know. And I think it's that's been the tricky thing about this year is trying to distinguish between anti-racism and this new anti-racism, mm. trying to distinguish between the slogan Black Lives Matter and the organisation. Like all of these things have been quite difficult, but I think it became particularly clear now through the way in which it became this woke cultural revolution, how actually uninterested in material conditions these people actually are, yeah. how this is something very different, something very authoritarian. And I think the other thing that's crystallised is how this new allegedly anti-racist movement is how fundamentally misanthropic it is this is something that you can see in the writings and the thoughts of, you know, everyone from Tanahasi Coates and Rennie Edo Lodge and Ibram X. Kendi. All these people basically have this incredible pessimism that America or Britain are fundamentally racist, always will be. There's no changing that. And that all you can really do, particularly as white people, is engage in acts of showy spiritual penance. Mm. And that's something which I think has become really clear this year as well. It's almost become verboten to talk about the progress that has been made. It's almost <laughs> become a kind of dog whistle to use the colorblind formulation of Martin Luther King. So that's one of the other things which I think has been really clarified this year, which is that this is not anti-racism as anyone had previously understood it. It's something a little different and it's something which really needs to be challenged because as you've gestured to in your introduction, it's now not just limited to the universities and certain sections of the media. It's basically the ruling class ideology almost. It's been embraced across the board. Ella? The thing about the murder of George Floyd and the response to it was it really, obviously it marked a shift because things have really kicked off in terms of discussion about racism this year. But, you know, the important thing is is to understand why it happened then in May, because, I mean, we know that George Floyd wasn't the first victim at the hands of police 
brutality or negligence or prejudice or whatever you want to call it. I mean, just months before Breonna Taylor was killed, you know, there was Alton Sterling in 2016. And in the UK, likewise, you know, John Charles de Menezes, Mark Duggan, there is an issue of racism with the police, obviously different in the US. But that issue of police brutality and police racism for kind of a moment galvanized into what was, you know, actually quite in some cases, an exciting protest about oppression of black people, particularly in America. And I remember going to the very first semi-Black Lives Matter organized, but actually kind of more organic protests in response to George Floyd's murder in London. And there was a real sense of anger and injustice, you know, a reaction uh, against racism. And as Tom says, the problem was, and I think the reason why George Floyd, because there have been protests before, the reason why the issue of George Floyd's murder turned into this sort of larger show of trying to define what is acceptable anti-racism is because it really quickly stopped being about black people's relationship with the police. And it really quickly stopped about the inherent problems in the way the police work in America and the UK. And it became about how many black people are on literary boards. What kind of television programs can you run to talk about the way in which white and black kids interact with each other at school? It turned into this kind of really sort of, cultural thing Mm. rather than being about the specifics. And the thing that I think has been most destructive has, as Tom's already kind of alluded to, has been the way in which solidarity has been broken down because the really positive thing about those first initial protests in response to George Floyd's murder was the fact that, you know, I saw it on streets. There were white and black kids from the same neighborhoods, from the same estates in London coming out together to support each other against something that they thought was unjust. And since then, since that kind of brief moment, there has been a really considered and steady destruction of the idea that white and black people can come together in this. I mean, Mm. it's been there for a long time in terms of there have been books written like Rennie Edo Lodge's Why I'm No Longer Talking to Black People About Race always gets put out as the sort of token one about this idea that white people can't understand black people's experience. But that really has become accepted as a vicious reality in 2020. And of course, it's not a reality. And it doesn't matter how many corporates put black squares on their social media or pretend like they're doing the right thing. The underlying issue is quite dark, which is that we're coming out of a year in which there have been some really brutal displays of racism, some very serious issues needing to be discussed about racism. And we're kind of tongue-tied because everyone is worried about whether or not their support against racism will be considered racist. <laughs> so the the kind of, I think the lessons to learn is that the discussion around what is the right kind of anti-racism has pretty much predominantly been owned by these sort of middle-class literary types, cultural types who have tried to steer the conversation away from the material reality of racism where it exists to this kind of like, you know, it's, it's a bit like when feminists talk about the patriots just kind of in the air and um, white people can't help but breathe it in. If we can claim it back away from that and say that actually this is something that people should come together against in a universalist sense and unpick some of the, I think, class elements that are inherent within that, I think most people will breathe a sigh of relief because I can't believe either that there's a huge amount of bubbling racism innate within white people in the UK or America, as little as I can believe that 
people are eating this stuff up and buying it, the Black Lives Matter kind of white silence is violence, white privilege stuff. I think most people are just feeling really pissed off about this and want to do the right thing. And so if we can learn any lesson from it, it's that stick your neck out and say what you think, if you think it's the right thing. We should try and loosen up the ability for people to have a debate about this. Yeah. Some of the best-selling books you've already alluded to, Renieto Lodge, Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. He even made a book called uh, Anti-Racist Baby, which is like a picture book to make your baby woke. Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility. I mean, the ideas pushed by these books are really a problem, I think. You know, it is this idea, as you've alluded to, Ella, that, you know, you could never really understand the lives of other people. You know, there are white ways of seeing the world and black ways of seeing the world, white interests and black interests in competition. And I think one of the things that has become very apparent is how helpful those ideas are to the ruling class, how helpful they find it to divide people up by race. And there has obviously been a shift in the way that's that's been done over the years where you might have had a ruling class that used racism to essentially stoke divides between white working class and ethnic minorities. Now you use this kind of capital A anti-racism to create those divides, stoke those divisions, make people feel guilty, make people want to feel that they need to walk on eggshells when they're talking to other kids in their school or other fellow students on their university course or fellow colleagues or whatever. Mm. It has created this quite poisonous atmosphere, which I think is is not beneficial to even to people who are experiencing racism. Tom? I think that, that that's a really important point. And I think it's important to say this isn't that there's some sort of conspiracy amongst the kind of capitalist class to to divide and rule by, you know, putting Ibram X. Kendi out in front and <laughs> the rest taking care of itself. But it's just quite clear that they benefit from this situation in which this is the new religion, in which this is the new ideology. It salves them of their guilt. <laughs> it provides them with a means through which they can appear pious. Because when you've got a situation where what is passing for cutting-edge progressive politics is interested, broadly speaking, in superficial issues of quote-unquote representation, which is obsessed with boardrooms and their composition, mm. which is obsessed with atoning and expressing allyship. All of this stuff is talk, really. It's, it's not very difficult for a, for a company to hire some more diversity leads and bring in Robin D'Angelo and pay her exorbitant fees to tell all of their staff that they're racist. Like, it's not very difficult to do this. Mm. Meanwhile, the kind of issues in relation to wages in relation to benefits in relation to companies like Nike, which poses very woke, support Black Lives Matter, but are implicated in kind of slavery-like labour conditions in Xinjiang. Like you, you see this and, and you recognise that even if it's not a kind of conscious strategy, you can understand why this ideology so appeals to them. And it's just so clear now that I think capital A anti-racism, as we're referring to it, its primary beneficiaries are rich white people. Mm. That's the great irony of Rennie Edo Lodge's I'm no longer talking to white people about race. As soon as that book came out, she spent years going around talking to white people about race <laughs> because that's the primary base for this kind of ideology. And it's just interesting because you see, we'll get onto the US election a little bit later, but even in terms of opinion polls and things, Opinium had something out a month ago. 44% of ethnic minority Brits think that BLM has increased racial tension. Only 22% disagree. There was another poll more recently about one of these issues which is constantly brought up by identitarians, issues of, again, just kind of representation, you know, more black or Asian politicians, et cetera. 
it's something like 75% of ethnic minority people think it's not very or not at all important. Hmm. And it just goes to show that we spend so much of our time talking about this and you would get the impression that, <laughs> that this is a politics and it's a politics that claims to speak on behalf of ethnic minorities and people struggling in society. And yet it's fundamentally something which salves the egos and flatters some of the most powerful and influential people in the society. And it's just, it's become so clear that that is the case over the course of the past year. Ella, do you want to add one final thing? I think the point that Tom raises about representation is really important because there's really no end point to that. There's this whole idea of it's so important for people to be seen, but at the same time saying, you know, that anti-racism with a capital A says it's impossible for anyone to understand what it's like to be me. And of course it is impossible. I mean, no, no one can really understand what it's like to be Ella Whelan or Fraser <laughs> Myers or Tom Slater. That's the kind of fascinating thing about human individuality. But when it comes to political desires, it's quite easy to understand what you want. You've just got to tell me. We've got to talk about it. And once you put those political desires and have that debate, it's quite easy to build a movement around something or have a kind of universalist outlook. The problem really here is that with the discussion around racism is centered around the idea that the most important thing is how individuals feel about themselves, how, you know, how young black people feel about themselves and how they, it's, it's exactly the same in feminism, by the way. How do women feel? How do they see themselves in the world? Rather than saying, what is it about the way society is made up? What is it about the way resources are shared out? What is it about your political life that you'd like to change? And how can we change it together? You know, this is identity politics, which has taken a particularly vicious hold in 2020, probably in part because public life has been all but decimated by the coronavirus. It's, you know, not a coincidence that the sort of prevalence of this social media driven nonsense politics has come to the fore when really there's no ability to have any kind of debate in the public square. But all of this focus on identity and how one's sort of narcissistic individuality is represented in the world, rather than the material things like, do we want to change the way the police works? Do we want to change the way parliament works? You know, what is it about our public lives that we want to come together and talk about? That shift, I think, is really going to need to be addressed because identity is important but it's not something that you can base a political movement around. And that's, the, for me, the fundamental flaw of anti-racism today is that it neglects to look at the wider picture of what politics is and should be, and instead is mired in the idea of identity politics, which is always going to be a dead end. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. It's Fraser here with another quick reminder, if you haven't already, to consider giving Spiked a donation. All of our content is free and we want to keep it free so we can spread our pro-liberty, pro-democracy message as wide as possible. But we can only do that with your support. If you'd like to make a donation, it's easy. Just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. Now, back to the show. One of the major countercurrents to this identity politics that has kind of taken over the establishment has been the rise of populism. And, mm. you know, we talked about this earlier in, in January, the populist revolt for Brexit 
looked as if it was being realised properly. Technically, we have left the EU after years of kind of uncertainty, attempts to water down or overturn the vote. It is official. Britain is out of the EU. At the time we were talking about this, we don't know the exact composition of the trade deal. Maybe there won't be a trade deal at all, but we will be out of the transition period in the new year. Obviously, in America, the populist revolt has taken the shape of of Donald Trump. And he, of course, lost the election this year, but he did manage to actually expand his voter base considerably, quite unexpectedly in many circles. I mean, a lot of people have argued that the pandemic has really put populism in the back foot, putting it back in its box, showing us we need experts and sensible technocrats to run the show instead. But Tom, are you optimistic, pessimistic for the future of populism? What's your take been on this year? Despite everything, I am optimistic because I think the way in which coronavirus has changed the discussion around populism is interesting because you might on the face of it think that this year has been a win for, as you say, Fraser, the experts, that it's a win for the technocrats because really actually society works best and is less messy and complicated if just a handful of people decide how our lives are going to run. But despite the fact that there are kind of polls here, there and everywhere showing that people support restrictions and that people are worried and all that kind of thing. We all know that anecdotally or otherwise, there is a growing scepticism or a scepticism that was always there, a cynicism about the effectiveness of this way of life and also the kind of dystopian nature of this way of life. And I think people are really starting to properly think about the idea of the importance of public life and the importance of the public square and, you know, the importance of having political control. I mean, as we've already talked about, the fact that the government's basically run, I wouldn't quite say an authoritarian regime, but, you know, kind of a whiff of a one over the last few months, I think has made people realise the importance of democracy as a value in and of itself. But I think, you know, looking back to that general election win for the Tories in 2019, right at the end in December, and the high that lots of people were on for the potential for change in politics. I think it's not all but decimated. The interesting thing about Brexit was it was this almost (laughs) in a shame kind of a way, once in a lifetime moment where you Mm. had this huge revolt and it was really powerful. But as we all know, it was attacked left, right and centre for the next four years by pretty much everyone with political power. And that kind of populist sentiment, the momentum of populism among the public kind of dissipated. But if you look closely, you can see it continuing to bubble away in different areas. So something that I've been fascinated by and obsessed with for the last few months is the protests around the LTNs, the low traffic neighbourhood schemes, where basically in different parts of London, groups of working class people are coming together and protesting against changes framed in terms of climate change to the way in which their local neighbourhoods run, road closures and that kind of thing. And being quite imaginative about it, there's a particularly odious councillor in Hackney who tweeted about cabbage eating, you know, backwards people (laughs) in Hackney not being in favour of clean air. And a bunch of East Londoners did a motorcade and delivered a load of cabbages to him for lunch. So while the boil has gone off, populism, I think to a certain extent, as this sort of movement, as we were talking about it in relation to Brexit in 2016, it's a bit like we keep saying and have said several times on this podcast, once the genie is let out of the bottle, that notion of democracy and greater democratic control, you can't get it back in. And it's bubbling away in different areas. 
So I'm actually feeling hopeful and optimistic because mm. I think if anything, this year has shown the importance of public involvement in society, in political life. And I hope that people are feeling like once we get these restrictions out of the way, which will take some doing, that there'll be more desire to have that kind of sense of public engagement. And it's not over until the fat lady sings in Brussels, although I'm not hanging my hopes on the idea of Boris Johnson coming through with anything too too strong in the next few days. <laughs> Tom? I think it's argument that the pandemic has vindicated technocracy and sort of globalism and supranational institutions, you know, is so ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things which it's really important to say that because yeah. first of all, we saw over the course of this year, actually, why nation states are quite important because of the fact that when push came to shove, when a crisis is upon you, yes, you want international cooperation and international spirit and goodwill and all the rest of it. But at the same time, when you do have to do quite drastic things, it's only really through the nation state that you can do that with legitimacy and quickly. <laughs> you know, This is something why having democratically elected politicians within the national framework is so important because it's in times like this that you need that kind of thing. And I think, again, if you look at what's been going on in the European Union over the course of this year, most recently, the slowness with, with the vaccine is being rolled out. You've got a lot of people in Germany complaining the fact that they came up with this vaccine <laughs> and they're not even allowed to have it, demonstrates how clunky as well as how fraught with peril that kind of huge superstructure is. Similarly, all of the rows that have gone on about the coronavirus recovery fund and the bailouts, et cetera, which took a very long time to formulate, you see that really quite clearly. And even just on the kind of national level, this has not been a good year for the experts. Mm. You know, we were pushed into lockdown by the predictions of one Neil Ferguson, whose record of getting his predictions right seems even worse than the political pundits calling elections in recent years. We've seen U-turn after U-turn on the basis of all kinds of different issues. There's been a lot of experts who've been running around like headless chickens. You know, like John Edmonds, who's a very prominent sage member, a pro-lockdown person, has completely turned on a dime in terms of what he thinks in relation to tackling coronavirus. Mm. The idea that these people are literally these sages who must be listened to, who aren't subject to their own forms of groupthink and bias, and who we always need to listen to, but at the same time recognise that it's the job of elected politicians to make those decisions. This year has demonstrated that in, in droves. But I think also what's really important to say, and I'm sure we'll get into this a bit more in terms of the US election, is the fact that as soon as one of these countries which did have that populist uprising in 2016 were given another opportunity to express their view. Granted, Joe Biden did win. He got the highest popular vote of all time. But the second highest popular vote of all time goes to Donald Trump in that election as well, even in a situation in which he was being smeared as a racist, as a white supremacist again. He was being talked up as not just a threat to nice civil democratic norms, but literally to civilization was the way in which it was being presented this time around. Mm. He got 74 million odd votes and a higher proportion of the vote amongst ethnic minorities and women and all of the groups that people were told would basically be trampled by another four years of Trump. And I think, again, it just demonstrates that whilst people want to chalk up 2020 as a year in which burnish the arguments of why you need technocracy, why you need supranational institutions, a lot of those institutions actually fell on their face. And as soon as the public were given an opportunity to register a view, they certainly registered their discontent with that. Trump is obviously a very flawed and very disliked figure. He's always been an imperfect vessel for this. But all of that being considered, the fact that he did as well as he did is definitely an indication that populism isn't dead yet by any stretch of the imagination. And I think that there will be certain issues that people will 
coalesce around. For instance, there's been some lockdown scepticism among populists. In the figure of Trump, of course, you have someone who was a bit more interested in keeping the economy open. And obviously, a lot more people agreed with that, it turns out, than would say so out loud. In the UK, you have kind of Nigel Farage dipping his toe into this kind of sceptical movement. In Germany, you have massive protests led by this Querdenker movement, which they call themselves lateral thinkers, essentially, which are are posing real problems for the kind of established political parties at the moment. But of course, even when the lockdown goes away next year, hopefully, fingers crossed, with people being vaccinated, the effects of those policies, as we've talked about, are going to live on. And there's going to be a lot of angry people. And as Ella was talking about with the low traffic zones, the climate is going to almost inevitably arise as another major issue next year. And as more and more climate policies actually come into force, as people's incomes are squeezed, as their freedoms are curtailed again, although probably not to the extent that we're experiencing now, that is going to create new sources of tension and new sources of conflicts against what another issue where the establishment thinks it has got this 100% right and there can be no dissent. Anyone who thinks that the technocrats have, have played a blinder this year and they've put the public back in their box and people are just going to be following orders for <laughs> the rest of our lives has got another thing coming, frankly. Ella? One thing that we've learned, especially from 2020, is to never underestimate the ability of anti-democrats to not just be duplicitous, but pretty much have straight up double standards when it comes to their approach to democracy. And it's been hard to be an anti-democrat this year, right? Because, you know, the whole thing about Trump was his antics in trying to deny the election result and being a sore loser and doing more serious things like trying to sue to get a win have forced those who were almost Mm. doing pretty much along the same lines, similar things in relation to Brexit in the UK, to come out and attempt to defend democracy. Obviously, they gave it up as soon as Trump gave it up, but there was a real double standard there. There's been double standards in relation to the continual and sort of sickening at this point, sycophantic praise for the European Union, despite Mm. the fact that at the start of this year, as we covered on this podcast, its relationship and approach to Italy, when it was in dire straits, showed that actually Mm. the nature of that institution is far from democratic or open or global. And, you know, we've been seeing now with our own MPs in the UK and their approach to criticising the tier system, you know, all these Northern Labour MPs who are throwing their hands up in the air and criticising the government for not listening to them, for being undemocratic and not responding to their needs. I mean, need to look in the mirror and see what they've been doing for the last few years in relation to their own voters and Brexit. My point is that this is nothing to the political elite. They are able to shapeshift and pick up very important issues like democracy when they want them and drop them when they want them. And so I think the challenge then is how do you take these values of populism and democracy because populism gets a bad rap it's like people just think of bolsonaro or trump or Mm. you know a populist that they don't like when they talk about populism but the idea of people power or democratic control for everyone from someone working in tesco to someone working in sage that idea is very serious and needs to be talked about seriously so i think if we can reinvigorate a sense of democracy as a value in and of itself as something that isn't just the process through which society organises engagement in political life, but the fundamental starting point for politics, 
then we might see more opportunities for people to express themselves politically, especially as Fraser says, because once the pandemic is over, then the second pandemic is going to be the, and the second lockdown is going to be one in the name of Greens, in the name of climate change. And so this whole debate is not going to be over once we all get vaccinated in the spring. It's really only just starting. Thanks for listening to the Spike podcast. We'll be back next week. If you enjoyed the show, why not check out some of Spike's other podcasts in the meantime? We have the Brendan O'Neill show in which Spike's editor talks all about the big ideas, bad ideas, problems and controversies of life in the 21st century, all with the help of an esteemed guest. Then there's Culture Wars hosted by Spike's columnist, stand-up comic and satirist Andrew Doyle. This monthly podcast is the perfect antidote to the woke idiocy taking over our lives. And last but not least, you should check out Last Orders, a podcast hosted by Tom Slater and Chris Snowden. Last Orders is all about freedom, the nanny state and censorship. And there's a lot about coronavirus these days too. You can listen to all these shows with your favourite podcast provider, or you can find them on the Spiked website at spiked-online.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.